the third was crowned as king of the United Kingdom on May 6, 2023. He also took on the monarchical title, Defender of the Faith, a title which was first given to King Henry VIII in 1521 and kept by his heirs for over 500 years to every king and queen of the British crown. The irony is King Charles III, who is more known to be a universalist, universalism which holds that all religions lead to heaven and to God, preferred to be known as defender of faith rather than defender of the faith, the faith which refers to the Protestant Christianity. Well, King Charles proposed legislative changes to the 1953 Royal Titles Act, but was surprisingly denied by the Church of England, the titular head of the monarch, declaring that the title was to remain intact. Consequently, King Charles III adopted the title, but the truth is no one expects King Charles III to be an ardent defender of Christian orthodoxy, as he himself is a doubtful one. Even at his coronation, at his insistence, representatives of other world religions participated in the ceremony. What would it be like for the king of a nation to be a true defender of the faith? a true defender of the people, for a king or a president of a nation to be so upright, so highly favored, so victorious, literally undefeatable, so glorious, so loved, that he would cause the entire nation to sing in praise of God's strength and of his power. In our deeply divided nation, it's hard to imagine a person, much less a king, bringing a nation in unity, in corporate rejoicing, isn't it? Nevertheless, in our psalm this afternoon, we learn of such a king, a king who leads his people to exalt and praise God's strength as he experiences unmerited blessings from God as he depends wholly on God. We're picking back up our 15-year intermittent series, Summer in the Psalms, where we are looking to cover 10 psalms through the months of June, July, and August uh, each summer, hoping to cover all 150 psalms in 15 years. We are in year three of our series, covering chapters 21 through 30. Well, each year, when the series begins, I encourage all of our members to get in the habit of reading through the entire book of the psalms each summer, and I will do so again this year. Read 50 short, they're very short, chapters a month for month June July and August. So if you start tomorrow, read about two to three chapters of Psalms on the weekdays only. I, I made it reasonable for you. You don't have to read it on the weekends. A Monday through Friday, two to three chapters a day, then you will be able to read all 150 Psalms in the summer. I pray that you will consider joining us and share with one another the, the deep and great encouragements you gain from growing more familiar with the Psalms and learning how to better lament and to praise God through the Psalms. Amen? Raise your hand if you're going to join me. Okay, you'll think about it and pray about it. May the Spirit of God convict you to do so. Well, let's dive right in to the Psalms. Here's some context. Psalm 21 is a royal psalm, which means the psalm deals with the spiritual role of kings in the worship of Yahweh, the God of our Bible. And royal psalms typically point to the Messiah King, God's anointed eschatological coming king, who is the greater king than the present king, who is the promised heir of God's covenant. In a royal psalm, knowing this king blesses God's people because the king causes his people to worship God and worship Yahweh. And that's what we see in our psalm, that the salvation of the king causes the people of God 
to sing and praise and to exalt God of the scriptures, to exalt Yahweh. So how does this happen? What does salvation of the king have to do with you and me? What does the blessings the king receives in his victory, how does it bless us? How does the victory of the king cause the people to exalt the Lord? So from Psalm 21, I want to share with you two reasons, two points today, why God's people rejoice in the victory of the king. Two reasons why God's people rejoice in the victory of the king. Here's the outline so you know what's coming. Point number one, we rejoice because the king has won. From verses 1 through 7. We rejoice because the king has won. 1 through 7. And point number two, we rejoice because the king will win. Verses 8 through 13. We rejoice because the king has won. We rejoice because the king will win. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will remind you of the joy and the hope we have in our Messiah King Jesus, in whom we have ultimate victory. Whatever your trying circumstances are that weary you, whatever situation in your life that discourage you and suppress you, you know a king in whom you have power. You know a king in whom you have undiminishing joy and hope. You have a reason to rejoice today, brothers and sisters, in his presence. You can sing of his greatness in the fellowship of his people this afternoon. I pray that you will be strengthened in your joy, in your love, in your hope, in Christ Jesus our Lord today. Amen? Guests and visitors, thank you so much for joining us for our Sunday gathering today. If you're here and you know yourself not to be a Christian, we especially welcome you. Know that we've been praying for you. Uh, praying specifically that God would lead you here today to hear His Word, the words of life, the words of truth today. The Bible says, faith comes by hearing. So you are here and you confess, you admit, I don't have any faith. Well, we believe that God led you here because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. So open up your heart, open up your minds, open up your ears to Him and hear these words because these are the words of truth. These are the words of Christ. We pray that you would hear the words of Christ, that God has provided a way of salvation for sinners just like you and me, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Don't listen to the distractions. Fight the good fight of faith as you listen to His Word this afternoon, right now. We pray that you'll come to see and know Jesus, the gracious and loving Savior, and how He is worthy of your attention, of all your worship as the King of kings and Lord of lords today and forevermore. So without further ado, let's turn to our passage, which can be found on page 457 of the Boo Bibles around you. And as you turn there, please keep your Bibles open and refer it to it often as I read and preach so that you know that this message is God's Word for you. Psalm chapter 21 says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet with him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. 
Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath, and fire will consume them. You destroy their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Amen. What does the victory of the king have to do with us? Point number one, we rejoice because the king has won from verses 1 through 7. The first observation we can make is the heading of the psalm, which includes two statements, to the choir master, a psalm of David. We know from studying the Bible that the title of the psalm is not inspired. That was added by the Bible translators. But the heading is inspired. Those words, to the choir master, a psalm of David, are the very inspired words of God. So let's look at those phrases. The first phrase of the heading says, to the choir master. The intended purpose of this psalm is for congregational singing, congregational worship. Immediately, we are to understand the truths of this psalm is not merely information about the king, but for the entire congregation of the Israelites for the purpose of worshiping Yahweh, the one true living God of the scriptures. As the psalms were the hymn book of God's people, this psalm was one in its repertoire. Secondly, the heading indicates a psalm of David, which means it is either written by David or about David. In this particular psalm, you'll see the difficulty of determining who it is exactly the king is. Is it David or is it the Messiah? Since the king is addressed in the third person, he, or the second person, you. We'll talk more about this in a few minutes. And that's all about the context that we get regarding this psalm. But one of the clearest connections we have of the psalm is its placement in the Psalter. It follows Psalm 20, another royal psalm. And many biblical scholars see the apparent connection of this psalm to the previous psalm. FYI, you can find a sermon on Psalm 20 on our website if you wish to reference it. Well, as you look back at Psalm 20, and I encourage you to do so this afternoon or this evening, you'll see that there are numerous parallels. But let me give you a few examples of how they pair. Look at Psalm 20's final verse. It leaves off with this, the congregation petitioning God. Oh, Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. In Psalm 20, the people petition God to save the king. And in Psalm 21's first verse, how does it begin? O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how great he exalts. Apparently, the people praise God because he has saved the king in an answer to their petition by giving the king victory. Both Psalms contain the alteration of address from the third person singular, he, to the first person plural, we. And both Psalms point to God's anointed king, the Messiah king, and how his victory affects his people. You'll see that in the psalm, how that is the emphasis of the psalm. The king's rejoicing in the strength of God and the king's exaltation of God in verse 1 leads to the exaltation of God by his people in verse 13 through singing and praising, through rejoicing. The psalm is structured that way in a literary device known as an inclusio, where the emphasis or the point of the passage is the bookend or the sandwich bread. Some of you guys are hungry, so maybe this illustration will serve you better. As a sandwich, bookend, and everything else in the middle are contents of the sandwich, 
which provides the flavor or the crunch, or in this case, the reasons why the king and we exalt God. Some of you have asked me this week if this psalm is a chiasm in which the middle verse is the point of emphasis, but I'll show you why this psalm is structured a bit differently since it doesn't show parallel phrases that line up nicely like a chiastic structure. Although the central verse in this psalm, verse 7, does play a significant role in the psalm. But we'll get more onto the structure as we progress. Well, how does the king's rejoicing cause us to rejoice? Let's look more closely how. Look at verses 1 through 2. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the requests of his lips. Selah. The reason for the king's joy and praise of God is for the display of God's strength through a victory. That's what the phrase, in your salvation, means. Salvation and victory are synonymous in this psalm. You'll see in verse 1 through 7, it's speaking of victory in the past tense. This fact is ever more clear in the NIV translation as verse 5 is translated, through the victories that you, Yahweh, gave. God has granted King David victory in battle which showed off his power, his strength, and showed that David is indeed, was indeed, God's king. There was an interdependent relationship between God, Yahweh, and King David. That's what verse 2 details for us. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You see the victory that the people had petitioned for, the king, in Psalm 20. Verse 1, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And in Psalm 20, verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans has been directly answered by God as shown in verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 21. The king's ways were aligned in step with God's plans. Therefore, the king experienced success. That's why God receives the king's exaltation. And in turn, the king himself rejoices. The king rightly gives God the credit. Let me just pause there to remind us of Pastor John Piper's famous statement that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. We see that through this psalm, another example of how God's glory and our joy are tightly woven together, isn't it? There is a direct relationship. When God is glorified, when God is worshipped as He ought to be, we experience great joy. Amen? Consider that in your life today, brothers and sisters. Are you experiencing unshakable, undeniable joy as a result of God being greatly glorified in your life? Have you sought the Lord in prayer and petition, and has He not withheld the request of your lips because your desires and His will aligned, giving God great glory and you experiencing great pleasure? Consider how might the Lord be pressing in, in your present circumstance, in your absence of joy, to conform your life, to conform your prayers, to conform your desires to His will. Perhaps you came to church, you dragged yourself here somehow, but you're unhappy about the way you are feeling purposeless in your current situation, perhaps in your current job. Perhaps the Lord is calling you today to serve Him in another capacity, in another way. Perhaps you are dissatisfied in your current status, in your singleness, in your marriage, or as a parent. Well, perhaps the Lord is calling you to glorify Him through it instead of complaining, instead of grumbling, instead of comparing others with yourself. One sure lesson from this verse 
Giving God glory gives us great joy. Giving God glory gives us great joy. Perhaps you are thinking to yourself, well, David has a reason to rejoice. He has just won a great battle and he gets blessed. Well, maybe you look at your life and think to yourself, my life is marked only by losses. I often feel like a loser. I don't have a reason to glorify God or even to rejoice. I feel sad. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. Well, brother or sister, this message, this word is for you. And the next word of the psalm is especially for you. The word, Selah. Somebody say Selah. The word Selah means to indicate an interlude. As I mentioned, the psalms was a hymn book for God's people, for God's church. As God's people worshiped God through singing, a Selah was a musical interlude, an instrumental solo, a drum break perhaps, or a meditative or a contemplative pause. Here in this psalm, I believe, is a transition and a significant one. I mentioned earlier, the psalms isn't very clear which king the psalm is addressing. Is the psalm about David? Or is it about the Messiah King, Jesus Christ? The interpretation isn't as clear because the king is addressed in these verses in the third person. But if the psalm was written by David himself, it was common at the time for a king to do so. Or perhaps the psalm was written in the perspective of the choir director as he is leading God's people in worship, hence written from the congregation's perspective. Well, many Jews near the time of Christ understood that Psalm 21, the king of the psalm, points to the Messiah. In fact, the word king in verse 1 is actually translated as King Messiah in two ancient Jewish sources, although around A.D. 1100 this translation was dropped to just indicate king to better understand it of David himself. Well, John Calvin, the great reformer during the Protestant Reformation, addresses this issue and says this, But above all, it was the design of the Holy Spirit here to direct the minds of the faithful to Christ, who was the end and perfection of this kingdom, and to teach them that they could not be saved except under the head which God himself had appointed over them. Hence, whatever the interpretation one holds regarding verses 1 and 2, whether it was David or the Messiah, I think the word Selah provides transition that definitively leads us to look to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in the remaining verses. Sure, the eternity language can be seen as hyperbole, an exaggerated language, in reference to the human king David, or perhaps reference to his continuing reign through his heirs, But having the gift of the completed canon, the completed and inspired book of the Bible, and learning about biblical theology as we have been, God's grand narrative of redemption, old, and the New Testaments of the Bible telling one story of salvation through Jesus, the Messiah. There is no reason to avoid the clear and apparent purpose of the Selah in the psalm, which focuses our attention, which draws our attention and points us to the Messiah. So if you thought this psalm doesn't apply to you up to this point, this is talking about David. Because David's victory isn't your victory. Because his joy isn't your reason to rejoice. Here are affirmative reasons why the very blessing of the Messiah are yours as well. Similar to how Paul explains the Hagar and Sarah historical story as allegory to teach us salvation theology in Galatians chapter 4. Here in Psalm 21, David's historical victory points us to Christ's final victory and the victorious salvation that we have in him. And the rewards we receive also as the result of Christ's victory. And so, not to purposefully sound like a poet, one commentator says of verses 3 through 6, the symmetry of these verses show 
artistry in order to emphasize the central theme, the central blessing, a chiasm within an inclusio. Follow along. Look at verses 3a and verse 6b, the second part of verse 6. You meet with him. Your presence speaks of the presence of God. That's A. We're talking about chiasm. Okay? In verse 3b, crown of fine gold. And in verse 5, glory, splendor, and majesty. So speaks of glory. You following me? The presence of God, A, glory, B. Okay? And the central emphasis, C, life, in verse 4. He asked life of you, you gave it to him. The length of days forever and ever. In other words, because of the Messiah King's victory, because of the Messiah King's salvation, we receive and experience God's presence, God's glory, and foremost of them all, eternal life with Him forevermore. Amen? Look up at me. God's presence, God's glory, and God's eternal life through Christ the Messiah King. Amen? I don't need to belabor this further, do I? The Messiah's victory is for our joy. I'm just trying to make a point. The Messiah's salvation is for our eternal life. We get to experience His presence, His blessing, His glory, because God was pleased to save the king, because God was pleased to hear the petition for the king. All right, now I hope you are at the edge of your seats because this word is so good. Why would God do this? Why would God do this? Why would God bestow such great benefits and presence and glory and life to David and to his offspring? Verse 7 tells us the reason, doesn't he? Look at verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. The conclusive reason why the Messiah's king's past victory is our victory is because the king trusts in Yahweh. And more specifically, because the king trusts in God's covenant love, a covenant love God promised to Abraham, Moses, and David. It's talking about that hesed love, that steadfast love of God who claimed that he will keep his promise throughout all generations, which would be finally fulfilled in the final new covenant through Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Brothers and sisters, David rejoiced in the victory God had granted in answers to his prayers. God blessed David with his presence. God was with him. God blesses David with glory, rich blessings of honor and a crown to uphold. God blesses David with life. God spared him from death. But the life in the length of days, forever and ever, the glory of splendor and majesty and blessings forevermore can only be truly spoken of, of the Messiah King, Jesus. Hallelujah. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the best news you will ever hear, that the holy God created all things in love in order to display, in order to show us His own glory to His creation. And the height of His creation, as you know, was man and woman created in His image to be one with Him, to image Him by depending on Him, by displaying His glory through our trust in Him. But man, having been tempted by Satan, distrusted God, deliberately disobeyed His Word by rebelling against Him, seeking to be our own gods. Hence, because God is a righteous God. He cannot be one with sin, with unrighteousness. And so man was set on a consequential and eventual path to death and eternal judgment in hell. Because God is a righteous judge, 
He must punish all sin. No guilty can go unpunished. For to do so would be to compromise his righteousness and his justice. It would only be right for rebellious sinners to receive their just judgment. Just as a murderer deserves life sentence or worse, and sinning against him over and over again deserves eternal judgment. But God, but God is not only a just and righteous God, he is also a loving and merciful God. And because God is the all-knowing and almighty God, God had planned from before the foundations of the world to redeem a people for himself, to know his amazing love, a steadfast love, an unconditional love, a forgiving love, a never-stopping, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. And that love would be displayed by God keeping his word through his covenant a covenant God made from the beginning that an offspring of promise would be born and live and die to shed his own blood to be the payment of the sins of man. Just as a murderer pays for his murder with his own life, Jesus, truly God and truly man, the Son of God, came to earth to pay for the price of all man's sins, to die on the cross, bearing the sin and shame and guilt of all men, satisfying the wrath of God, justifying the judgment of God toward all evil and all unrighteousness. Jesus proved himself to be the promised Messiah, the Christ, by his perfect obedience to God's law, by living a sinless life, by dying a substitute death as a willing sacrifice. But that's not the end of the story, is it? On the third day, God raised Jesus, the Messiah, from the dead, just as the scriptures and Jesus himself said he would, proving that God keeps his covenant to a thousand generations. When God granted victory to Jesus Christ over sin, Satan, and death once and for all. Hallelujah. And just as Jesus prayed in John 17, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The reason those who believe in Jesus Christ can rejoice in his victory is because God answered Jesus' prayers and because through Jesus, the Messiah, we are one with him and one with God. And God's love for his Son is also the love that we get to experience because of Christ. And not only his love, all of the benefits that he receives is ours. His success is our success. His victory is our victory. His presence, his glory, his life is ours because of Christ. Amen? If you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, we pray that you are seeing Jesus as the merciful and gracious King whose victory is your victory, whose blessing is your blessing. As the king goes, so does the people go. I hope that you have seen as the affairs and politics have shown, as the president goes, so does the nation. The fact of the matter is, whether it's Biden or Trump or Charles or Elizabeth, there is not one human being that can guarantee victory as Jesus does. There is not one king whose eternal blessings can be ours except in Jesus. There is not one king who can truly be a defender of the faith except Jesus, the Messiah King. So let me ask you, friend and visitor, who is your king? Who is your king? Answer that question in your mind right now, this moment. Because the reality is everyone, every single one of us worships something. You know what it is because you know it right now, this moment. You worship something. Who is your king? 
whether money, power, sex, or self, or spouse, or children, you worship. We all worship something. And let me tell you, the Word of God is telling you right now, none of it is worthy of your life. None of it is worth your eternity. None of it can give you life, much less eternal life, much less joy. The Bible continues to repeat, self-pleasure is slavery. Pleasure in the Savior, Jesus, is eternity. I pray that you would surrender to him, that this is your choice today. If you do not know Jesus, repent of your sins. That means to turn from trusting in yourself and the things of this world. Believe that Jesus actually rose and died for you. That's the reason why thousands of millions of Christians all around the world have been worshiping Jesus for over 2,000 years. Because if he is dead, this all means nothing. But because he is alive, we are here gathered today worshiping him. Believe that this Jesus rose again for you. Trust him with your whole life today, this moment, and forevermore. Trust Him daily with everything. Talk to one of the pastors at the close of service at the back doors or talk to a member sitting next to you if you want to learn more about how you can follow and live your life for Jesus the King. Brothers and sisters, to rejoice in King Jesus' past victory, verses 1 through 6, is to trust in His steadfast love in the present, verse 7. But it also is hope for future and final victory. Past, present, and future, that is our faith. That is our guarantee in Jesus Christ. In him we stand secure, past, present, and future. And that's what the last phrase of verse 7 teaches us, doesn't it? He shall not be moved. Because he will not be moved, we will not be moved. Jesus Christ sits at the throne in heaven, and nobody will be able to, is able to dethrone his reign. Amen? Because he reigns sovereignly, we stand secure and we stand firm. But let's talk more about the hope that we have in the king's future victory, which moves us to our next point in verses 8 through 13. What does the victory of the king have to do with us? Point number two, we rejoice because the king will win, verses 8 through 13. So in verse 1 through 7, David described the blessings God gives to Christ. Now the psalm focuses on the way God fights on Christ's behalf. You'll see that these verses are approached from the perspective of the people as they look for a demonstration of royal power and glory bestowed on the king by the Lord. The people of God view the anointed king as God's means of establishing his kingdom on earth by ridding the earth of all God's enemies. This is a picture of God's complete salvation, brothers and sisters. God crowns Jesus the Messiah as king with honor and also defends protects his glory by demolishing all of his enemies. Look at verses 8 through 11 again. It says this, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. Perhaps the violence of these verses might catch you as a surprise. We are not used to thinking about God's wrath this way as one of the ways God blesses Christ and also his people. Well, these verses show three stages of God's judgment toward his enemies, discovery, destruction, and defeat. They will be discovered first. You notice in verse 8 this repetition of the phrase, don't you? You will find out. You will find out. These verses are teaching us enemies of the king will all be discovered. Those who hate Jesus the king will be found out. 
There's no way to hide from God's all-knowing and all-seeing eyes. And let me tell you that this is a hopeful word for all of us. Although in this world, some criminals and some murderers and some rapists and abusers and frauds may roam free, thinking that they can get away unnoticed. Though it may seem so for the present that they are getting away with all kinds of evil and unrighteousness in the reign of God's anointed king, not one enemy of God will be finally free. Not a single person will be able to fake their way through faith. No hypocrisy in the church will go undiscovered. No wolf will dwell among the sheep. They will be discovered. Secondly, they will be destroyed. That's verses 9 and 10. And those verses speaks of the breath as well as the depth of God's judgment toward evildoers, doesn't it? God is a blazing oven that will swallow them up. God's fire will consume them entirely, whether in this life or in eternity. Psalm 37, 9 says, For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. As certain as the joy of the king who trusts in God's steadfast love, the destiny of those who are evil is predicted. Utter destruction is their fate. Those who are enemies of God, those who hate God, will be confronted by a blazing fire which will consume them utterly and entirely. But not only that, any trace, any trace of their seed will be completely wiped out. That's verse 10. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Oh my goodness, how do we understand this? Listen, again, don't be surprised by the violence of these verses. This is our hope. This is our desire that no trace of evil remain anymore on that final day. Recently, we discovered at our home, uh, in our entrance, hundreds of tiny little bugs crawling around. Hundreds in our entrance, in our doorway. So my natural reaction, of course, was to get some bug spray immediately and spray it like crazy. Both hands. Working out my, I can't exercise because my legs, so I'm working out my fingers. Well, a few days later, they came back. Even more, they came back with a vengeance. It took us a while to find out what they were after Jerry did some Google search. Jerry found out that they were cement mites, bugs that love to live in the tiny crevices of the cement and the foundations of your house by the thousands. And because of their high pH levels, normal bug spray doesn't work on them. So no matter how much I sprayed, they came back. So Jerry looked it up and ordered some on Amazon. And let me tell you, when it delivered, those cement mites were utterly devastated. <laughs> By the wrath of my spray for generations to come, forever. <laughs> Sadly, I actually saw a few here and there perhaps plotting their comeback to a greater degree. But whereas, listen brothers and sisters, my powerful pesticide does not complete the job in eradicating these little critters, we can rest assured today, God's wrath will be full and final on the day of Christ's great comeback. On that day, as verse 11 says, it will be the day of their final defeat. Look at verse 11. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. Do not be caught off guard, brothers and sisters. Do not be fooled. The Satan has a clear agenda to steal, kill, and destroy believers. They plan and devise evil and mischief against you. The devil and his minions are coming for you, after you, if you have the name of Christ. 
We can see this very clearly as we see in our society and our culture. They are coming for our families and your marriages as society redefines biblical marriage. They come after your very identity as the culture promotes transgender ideology. They come for our unity as politics divide us by race and by our inequalities. They come for your purity as the media normalizes promiscuity and pornography. They come for your children as masses, champions, abortion as reproductive rights. 1 Peter 5 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. But as those who look to our king and as our king trusts in Yahweh Almighty, we do not fear ultimately. Though in this life we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, we trust in the steadfast love of God because of the promise of verse 12. Look at verse 12. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. The phrase, you will put them to flight, means in the original language, you will cause them to turn their backs. It means they will flee in fear in the presence of our almighty God. Moreover, I love the imagery of this prophecy. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Again, the violence of this passage, of this verse, may surprise us, but it is an imagery of the enemy's complete surrender. They are running away, but God has the bows aimed at their faces. That means complete surrender. They can't get away. They are caught. They are brought to justice. They will pay for their wicked deeds. Brothers and sisters, how do these verses speak to you? Where do you stand in the Lord's all-seeing judgment when he will come to discover, destroy, and defeat all his enemies? Do you shudder in fear? Do you ignorantly think, ah, too bad for them? What guarantees you, yourself, are safe? The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us, to his own way. And if you think that you are still exempt, the Bible says because of our sins, we are all once enemies of God. So ask yourself truly, which are you? But this psalm is perfect, isn't it? So perfect. Perfect in salvation theology, perfect in biblical theology. The focus of this psalm is not us. The focus of this psalm is on the Messiah King. In fact, there is nothing about God saving us at all in the psalm. God saves the king. God gives victory to the king. God blesses the king. God glorifies the king. God gives eternal life to the king. And that's because, again, only in God's anointed king, only in God's Messiah, King Jesus, because of what he's accomplished by his life, death, and resurrection, we have hope in him. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? That's why the only mention of the congregation is the response in verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing in praise your power. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, what will be your response? What is your response today? Will you join me and others who love and fear his name in singing and praising and exalting our Lord, the Lord of strength and power, 
for the salvation that he has granted through Jesus Christ and the victory he will grant through Jesus Christ on that final day, may we spend our days. Don't waste another day. Don't waste another day. May we spend all of our days in praising his name until the day of his great comeback. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are the victorious king. Father, in you we find promise. In you we find presence. In you we find glory. In you we find life. Father, so many in this world who do not know you live dead lives. They're not really living this life, living under bondage of sin and addictions. Father, may those who know you truly be free. If the Son has set us free, may we be free. May we live the life that you have called us to live, life eternal, giving you glory and honor and praise. Father, may those who glorify you experience incredible, exceeding eternal joy. Father, help us to express that joy in our singing, in our praising, in our witness of you. We honor you. We remember you. We remember your sacrifice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.